Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes, episode number 38 for the video cast and 28 for the podcast for the week ending July 10th, 2020. Hope everyone had a great week, a lot of nice developments toward the end of the week. But as we do each week, I'm going to start off with the media. Uh, first off, on Fox Business on Monday on the Clayman Countdown, I want to thank Ellie Terrett, Cheryl Cassoni, who was filling in for Liz Clayman, and of course Liz Clayman for having me on. And this was a great segment. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to take a look, watch it because what we're discussing here, and the market was up on that day was why the market was up. And what's really happening with the analysts is they're starting now to see, I talked about something called the City Economic Surprise Index, which on that date had hit an all-time record of 185. Now it's well over 200. And that simply measures the percentage of economic data that is exceeding expectations. And it has been off the charts. Uh, for the last couple of months. Uh, so it's nice to see that rebound. And then we started to talk about the cases around the country in areas like the epicenter versus some of the hot spots in the Sun Belt and the implications. So definitely worth a listen. Thanks again to Ellie Terrett, to Cheryl Cassoni, and Liz Clayman. Moving on to the article of the week. Uh, we called it the ACDC Back in Black Stock Market and Sentiment Results. Uh, that is a classic rock band and I thought it was appropriate because it's interesting to see the divergence uh, in the different indices year to date. So of the major indices, so far the NASDAQ, uh, the tech weighted, is the first one to make it out of the red and back into the black, hence the song. So uh, we listed the December 31st, 2019 closing prices. The S&P 500 was at 3230. The Dow was at 28,538. NASDAQ at 89.72 and the Russell at 1668. Uh, as of this article, which was written Wednesday night, posted Thursday morning before the open, before the uh, uh, continuing claims, etc., cetera, uh, the S&P needed about 1.91% to get to positive on the year, which is pretty amazing considering all we've been through. The Dow needed 9.47% industrial weighted, and the Nasdaq was already up six over 16.9% year to date, and the Russell needed 17.24%. And that looks a lot more like the main street, smaller businesses that are that are lagging and, and we see it in our everyday lives. So um, I started out with this chart and it really pointed out, which we've talked about, uh, the market rallied basically 35% off the bottom in the first 35, 36 days. And then it effectively did nothing for 60 days. It had this consolidation box then popped up and retested it you know, breakout back test uh, and was effectively nowhere about a uh, little less than a, about three weeks ago um, and uh, then retested again towards early July and just then. So now we're coming up closer to the top of the box where we can break out for a positive year to date. We failed at that level in the beginning of June. 
There's also a gap for people who are technicians. I don't pay a tremendous amount of, of attention, but I do keep it on the radar. There's a gap that goes up to about, uh, looks like about 33.25 that has to be filled from early March at some point. And then all-time highs would be above 33.93. Uh, moving forward. So uh, it'll be interesting to see whether we're able to push through and get positive on the S&P 500 uh, in, in coming weeks or if it's got to work this box for a little while and consolidate more and it'll be months off until we get uh, positive outcomes. And we're going to talk about a number of the factors that will make that determination moving forward. So the lyrics to the song um, which I liked was it said forget the hearse because I never die I've got nine lives cat's eyes abusing every one of them and running wild it's not dissimilar to the action of the S&P uh, basically you can throw everything at it into in 2020 and impeach impeachment in the house a, a, a plague as we call it the invisible enemy uh, all these different things just being thrown left and right, uh, different unrest, and yet it continues to plow higher with the help of massive, unprecedented domestic and global stimulus, liquidity, and aid, direct aid. Um, so, uh, so that was a great starter song. And this was the economic surprise index that I covered on the claim and countdown. And you can see here since Monday, it moved up even higher to a, a record here after coming off a record low just a couple months ago. So it was, you know, uh, missing expectations to the downside. Now it's beating like crazy to the upside. And uh, this we went into a number of the data points that have really just come back to even pre-COVID levels already. Uh, first, you want to see the China services PMI just exploded last week. And that's important because they were three months behind us. So um, uh, rather a couple months behind us. So they peaked in uh, early February and we peaked in early April in the epicenter in the United States, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. So uh, it's nice to see them all the way back up here. Uh, they had the highest services PMI since 2010, effectively, coming out of the last crisis. That was staggering to see. The U.S. ISM non-manufacturing, again, we're two months behind them, but uh, we already, we delivered 57.1. Anything above 50 uh, is expansion, so we're returning to growth, and the expectation was just barely above 50. 50.2, we came in at 57.1. ISM non-manufacturing business activity off the charts we haven't seen since... Uh, you know, for over two decades. So that was just huge to see coming in at 66 relative to a forecast of 49. And last month was 41. Uh, U.S. Services Purchasing Managers Index. Uh, this was services as opposed to manufacturing. And uh, this one exceeded expectations. Uh, last month was 37.5. This month came in at 47.9. And job openings beat expectations. They were expected to have uh, 4.85 million and they had 5.39 million. So 
what's new and what the market started to price in, because if you remember towards early July, just moving back up here, we were really going nowhere. Uh, we were back to retesting you know, levels that we had hit back in April. Um, and what's changed is that analysts are now starting to say, well, if the economic data is so good, that has to impact how CEOs are thinking, what they're seeing in their businesses, how they might guide, and potentially that earnings came in slightly uh, better than very, very, very low expectations. As I said on uh, on uh, the claim and countdown, expectations for Q2 are abysmal. Expectations for guidance were abysmal, and that's that narrative is starting to change. Seeing the economic surprise index, so that that is a key indicator that we look at, and we'll know more starting with banks next week on Tuesday, July 14th. J.P. Morgan and Wells. Fargo report and the next section of the article was did someone say banks and you all know I've been talking about banks uh, you know for a couple weeks now and we've loved banks since uh, since Wells Fargo crashed 50% we've been interested um, since the COVID crisis and it's just been trading in a range uh, since then, and uh, that, that started to change today. We'll see if we get follow through, but we actually had a situation today where uh, Wells was upgraded by to outperform from neutral by Baird, and this is from the fly, by the way, um, and put a $35 price target. We'll talk about the significance of that in just a few seconds. So, um, what has been going on with Wells, which is a which is a bell bellwether, is that they they pre-announced that they would be cutting the dividend on July 14th, and they would say by how much. Uh, the case that we made right after they made that announcement, which let's see what's the date of this. So that was June 29th. They made the announcement was that the last time Wells Fargo cut their dividend, they actually made the cut, which will happen on July 14th, was on March 6th, 2009. Now, they cut it 80, 85% at that point, and once the bad news was out, so they sold the rumor and then they bought the bad news, usually it's buy the rumor on good news, and then when the good news comes out, you sell the rumor, but it, when it's feared news, you sell the rumor, and then when, once the bad news is all out and there's no more bad news to fear, then you can buy it because it's at a low. Um, and you basically had a 256% rally after they announced the bad news the last time. Now, there are a lot of similarities, and the one thing that I came up on, and I couldn't figure out where, but it was, uh, I believe it was on Twitter, if you Google by, uh, search by uh, WFC, but... I came across an interview that Warren Buffett did in 2009, right around the time of the dividend cut for Wells Fargo. And basically what he said, and, and it's still, by the way, uh, one of Berkshire's top and Warren Buffett's top five holdings, you could effectively copy and paste his sentiment from the 2009 dividend uh, cut, the, the crisis period, to today. So the interviewer from Fortune asked him, what if the Treasury imposes new capital requirements? Will it hamper their earnings power? And what Buffett said was, I don't think it'll hamper their earnings, but if you make them sell a lot of common equity, 
it would kill the common shareholder. It wouldn't increase the earnings power in the future, and it would increase the shares outstanding. Wells, if they want another $10 billion in common equity or something like that in Wells, they'll have it in a very short period of time at this dividend rate. Uh, in March, Wells cut its dividend by 85%. Uh, this was again in 2009. Wells will be piling up the equity while they're paying nominal dividends. They could afford to pay the old dividend, but since they won't be paying the old dividend, that's $4 billion a year or something that they'll be adding to equity. So I did the math. The consensus is that uh, on Bloomberg was that uh, they would be cutting the dividend down to 20 cents a quarter from, 20, uh, from 51 cents a quarter, so 80 cents a year down from uh, $2.04 a, a share. And the math that I calculated was that they would save $5.1 billion. So in 2009, by cutting 85%, they saved $4 billion. Now they'd be cutting the dividend less than uh, that, you know, closer to 60% or so versus 85%, and they'd be saving $5.1 billion. They're not saving, they're retaining that, and that's still, as a shareholder, that's retained equity to your value. That intrinsic value accretes to you, whether they pay it out now or, or pay it out later. And that's what Buffett was saying actually in 2009, which is interesting because we were talking about that in the last couple of weeks. Now, uh, Buffett goes on to say, I would have been fine if they just said, look, we'll quit paying any common dividend until our equity has gone up by whatever it might be, 10 billion or 15 billion, and they'll get there in no time, then they could pay the regular dividend. Now they could do the exact same thing now. They could say no dividends, and they would probably gain, you know, close to $9 billion in equity in the next 12 months, eight and a half, nine billion dollars of equity without doing anything different, and he, he says they elected to do this, they, they elected to do it this other way because everybody seems to be kind of doing that. And I think the same thing will happen now. Um, there was an article this week, I talked about uh, a cut to 20 cents. The analysts here, uh, Carlton English is the author. This was um, June 30th, the day after they announced they would be cutting on the 14th. She said that most analysts were looking uh to about a 50% cut which would be about you know t down to 25 cents versus my estimate of down to 20 cents it doesn't really matter i mean it's in the ballpark if 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 expectations are 20 uh 20 cents consensus on bloomberg and they only cut to 25 you know that could be positive but it really doesn't matter whether they, again whether they pay it out now or they pay it out later that is shareholder value irrespective so um and my sense is they will uh, not cut the dividend 100 percent to build up equity because they don't really need it they meet all the capital requirements even in the most strenuous circumstances which have not been realized with covid but um their tier one capital ratios are fine everything's fine except they have to because they've had write downs because of the past sales practices etc they can only pay a max of the last four quarters earnings average and um so 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 that that's how they'll cut but but basically what buffett goes on to say is the idea of foregoing all or most of the dividend for a year 
to build the equity ratio up if that's what the government wants that's fine and buffett has a major shareholder saying we i don't care they can pay me now they can pay me later they're still going to do the business and uh and as he says but that isn't really the key to the future of wells unless the regulators make it the key to the future of wells the key to the future of wells is continuing to get money at very low cost and by the way they're getting money at lower cost today than they were in 2009 at the time of this interview uh then he says selling all kinds of services to their customer and having spreads like no one else has they have one of the biggest mortgage businesses in the world. In case you haven't noticed, even in uh, housing markets like Connecticut, which has basically been in a housing depression since 2007, uh, no rise in net home prices, is now in fuego. Uh, you know, a friend of mine uh, does that in, in town, and he was saying everything's selling, you know, the average of 101 sales in the last month sold at 97% of ask, which means a lot of them are selling over ask in bidding wars as millennials accelerate the trend that began before COVID of housing formation and moving out into, you know, Connecticut uh, and other states like, like that. Um, and uh, and now, you know, with COVID, people wanting wanting to get out of the city quickly and, and uh, uh, have that type of lifestyle. So 85 million boomers, the demand, the mortgage demand is going to be there uh, and Burke and um, and Wells is going to be best positioned to service those needs, whether they pay out a dividend now or pay out a dividend later. Um as I said on the videocast podcast last week, the Fed capped what they could distribute and pay out in dividends in the short term. The Fed did not cap what Wells Fargo can earn. <laughs> and that's the most important name of the game. Yeah, they'll take credit reserves. Yeah, they have all these negative expectations on Q2 credit reserves, etc. And they'll do that. But uh, the CEO of KBW, Thomas, um, uh, Thomas something or other, you can Google it. That's one of the biggest, uh, most specialized investment banks for the banking sector, uh, as well as Mike Mayo, who's an analyst at Wells Fargo, so he can't talk about Wells Fargo. But they both made the exact same point. This is an income, short-term income statement recession for the banks. This is not a balance sheet recession as you had during the great financial crisis. So... Um, so they're gonna, you know, they're gonna bounce right back. And you know, historically, any time that you can buy banks at a huge discount to book, which we're gonna talk to talk about right now, this was a chart put out, I think today, also by Carlton English. She's an author at Barron's that you definitely want to follow. She's put out a number of good articles on banks recently. Um, I think she reads my notes too, but I, I can't say for sure. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, maybe I'll send her the podcast this week. So uh, basically, this chart goes through the major banks and their price to tangible book, their price to book, their latest return, uh, the return on equity in their latest filing, and their three-year average return on equity. So you see these companies that, you know, I, I've always tended to be a mean reversion player and that works well in the long term you know and, and when i say long term the key here is uh, i put out this quote today from peter lynch a, a legendary um mutual fund manager and he said the key to making money in stocks is not to get scared out of them and you know if a neighbor of mine asked me yesterday 
They're like, you know, um, I, 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 they, they were driving by. I was getting the, the mail out of the mailbox. They're like, hey, you know, do you think I should be buying, you know, gold and uh, fang and all this stuff, which, you know, are at all-time highs? I said, look, you, you can do that. That's that's not what I do. He's like, well, what do you like? I said, I'm buying banks here. And he said, banks? No one wants banks. I was like, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's what I'm doing. And, uh, and he's like, I'm like, you know, Wells is trading at a 30, I think it was 38%. She has today, I guess it moved up a little bit, 35% discount to book. Uh, just two years ago, it was trading at a 75% premium to book in the mid 60s. And... Um, and he's like, oh, that's interesting. And I said, yeah, but the difference between you and me is that if it goes to 15, I'm going to be buying more and, and you're going to be selling to me if you buy tomorrow. And he's like, well, what do you mean? You think it could go to 15? I said, actually, I don't think it can go to 15. But if it did, I would be adding more. And I'm actually going to talk about a stock later in this podcast video cast that, um, that I've had for a while and uh, it has moved around like that, and now it's up like 50% off the basis. But um, th there's another quote by Peter Lynch, and maybe I'll put it out on Monday. He said something to the effect, um, in line with the key to making money as stocks is not to get scared out of them. He talks about stocks, I think it was from a speech he did in Boston, you can Google it on YouTube, and uh, or search for it on YouTube. And he says, I've bought many stocks at $12 that went down to $2 and ultimately wound up at $30 to $60. And for most people, they're just buying price action. And there's no, you, you know, over time, you're going to get smashed doing that. If you don't know what you're buying, if you don't know the durable nature of your business, then when you do get these swings, you know, like Charlie Scharf is the CEO of Wells Fargo. He bought $5 million of stock in March. He wrote, pulled out his checkbook, and he gets tons of stock as a CEO, so he didn't need to buy it. He bought a ton of it, $5 million worth, out of his own pocket at about $28 a share in March after you know Wells crashed. I guess at that point it was 45 46 And it went on to you know crash even more to like $52.55. So it got down to $24 from $28. So do you think he cares? Do you think if it went to $20, he would sell the stock that he bought at $28? Or if it went to $15, he would sell the stock that he bought at $28? No, because he knows two to three years out, it's going to be back at 60 70 you know, maybe even $80. Uh, maybe it takes three years, maybe it takes four years, but it makes no difference. And that $5 million he has will be 10 or it'll be $15 million. And that's the core difference. If you know that these stocks trade at a range of, you know, a discount to book, you know, the mean is probably a slight premium to book over time, and in euphoric periods, and when, when do banks typically outperform is coming out of recessions. We've just had two quarters of negative growth, so when everyone starts talking about recession this month, uh, then uh, you know it's behind us, and the economic data is already showing you that we're in recovery, not recession, but people will talk about recession because they're backward looking to the two quarters of negative growth. Banks and cyclicals do the best coming out of recessions, and um, this table 
talks about the different discounts. So do I wanna buy the ones that are already trading at a premium to book, or do I wanna buy the ones that are trading at a discount to book with expectation that they'll revert to the long-term mean of a slight premium to book or a euphoric mean of you know, uh, one and a half times to two times book, uh, and that's the opportunity with Wells. Um, right now, Wells is trading at also at a discount. Their latest filing had a 7.2% return on equity. Their three-year average was 10. So you know their their tendency is to produce at 10% uh, return on equity. They had a short-term impairment because of all these legal costs, because of all the uh, backward-looking problems before Charlie Scharf was the CEO that they've cleaned up and they've taken the charges, et cetera. So when they revert back to that 10.3% mean return on equity and even higher in previous years and back up to book like they did after they cut the dividend the last time and maybe even a premium if we get euphoria getting, you know, if we get anything like the Fed estimates and Goldman Sachs, which I also talked about on Fox Business, Goldman Sachs took down their 2020 GDP to like, um, negative four something, which is actually better than the CBO. It's better than the IMF, uh, which I made fun of two weeks ago because they're always the most negative people in the world. They were like negative 8% for this year. But they left their, Goldman Sachs left their 2021 GDP growth to 5.8%, which was above the Fed, Fed consensus. You get growth like that, the cyclicals and the uh, banks are going to be flying through the roof and they're not going to trade at their mean valuation, historic mean, they're going to trade above that because there's going to be a panic euphoria buying in. So that's what we're betting on. Um, and you can see all these different groups. So Goldman's trading at a discount. Some people like that. But they're trading in line with their historic return on equity. So the last three-year average, you know, they, they haven't shown that they can exceed that performance. Wells uh, is, is showing, number one, they should revert back to the mean on book. Their book is, and their book wasn't even impaired during the great financial crisis, which was a um, balance sheet recession. So actually, let me pull that up because when I did the few thoughts on the Wells Fargo dividend cut cap, you can find that article in the site. I showed the book value per share uh, through the years. And if you look 2007, it was $14. Through the crisis, their book value per share actually improved, even though their earnings and dividend got hit in the short term. Um, uh, so their book value was 22. Now it's over. It's about 40 dollars a share, and it just that intrinsic value continues to compound. And as you can see here, um, in 2018 or 2000. Even 2000, yeah, 2018, their book value was $37 a share, but the stock traded up to $66 a share. Right now, their book value is um, about $40 a share, and it's trading only at $25 a share. So you can just get a sense historically of where it trades, and these are really tremendous opportunities. And you can see these other banks and compare them that Carlton put out. Uh, that's in Barron's. And then she also put another article out that Wells Fargo stock has potential because a broken bank can be fixed. And she talks about a couple analysts who say as bad as it is with the legacy stuff they're cleaning up and they're uh, 
Uh, okay, Wells Fargo will also slice its 51 cent quarterly dividend by as much as 25 cents. So they're looking at, you know, 26 cents. I was looking at 20 cents. I, I was more negative than these guys are. Um, but the other thing that he says that's really interesting is Wells Fargo could still discuss how it plans to control expenses and provide a long-term return on tangible equity target. Some hard targets underscoring management's determination to deliver better to its shareholders could provide support to the stock in the aftermath of another weak quarter and dividend cut, Roth Katsky wrote, saying that the bank could provide a three to five year target for hitting a range of 12 to 15% return on tangible equity, it would be one step in getting Wells Fargo back on track. Uh, having watched numerous turnarounds over the last three decades, this guy Roth Katsky has been around forever, we are a firm believer that a broken bank can be fixed. And this is, uh, oh, her name is Susan Roth Katsky. That's her full name, Susan Roth Katsky. Uh, she's from Credit Suisse, so you can look her up. And she makes a really key point here. But if you got the return on equity, forget about the 10% return on equity when it traded up to 75% premium to book value. Imagine if you got a 12 to 15% return on, on equity. It could effectively, if we get into a euphoric state coming out of a cyclical recovery, you could get it to trade at two times book for a little while. You know, you get this thing trading up at 70 or $80 a, a couple years out. So there's a lot of opportunity here. But as I said to my neighbor who was interested in buying things that were already up, uh, was that, you know, if it took another leg down, let's say they announced that they're going to cut 100% of the dividend, uh, which in the short term people would view as negative or dividend funds would have to sell. There would be structural selling. Um, you know, I would be there buying and the type of person that asks a question along those lines, as long as they are mentally prepared that they're buying at a huge discount to intrinsic value. You know, uh, in um, a few weeks back, I was on with Liz and I said, Liz, do you think Liz Clayman on of the Clayman Countdown? Uh, do you think Wells Fargo is going to do 50% less loans next year than they did last year when it was trading in the 50s and, and 60s? You know, and she goes, of course not. And she's absolutely right. And that's the way you have to think about these things is this is a short term dislocation. There is a um, there is a, uh, a a movement in the market right now towards growth. Why? Last month it was values and cyclical because the recovery was coming out of the gate very, very fast. It switched back to tech for the last few weeks because the cases were spiking up which meant that the recovery would be slower, which meant that rates would stay lower, which meant that overall growth would be slower. And when you have overall growth slower, you have to put all your money into those few growth stocks, i.e. FANG and, and the like, some of the cloud stocks, etc., because that's the only place you can find growth if the recovery is going to be slow. Like I said in the article this week, if you get a vaccine or a treatment or some breakthrough, and we'll talk about a few that are on the table right now, uh, it changes absolutely overnight as we saw a taste of today with Wells Fargo up 6% on better than average normal volume. On a Friday in the middle of summer, it had above average normal volume on a 6% spike up. We saw uh, treasury yields start to go up. 
we saw also this morning some good news about a treatment, namely Gilead's remdesivir that showed a 62% efficacy rate, which we'll, which we'll discuss moving forward. So the second the narrative changes from this renewed fear of slow growth, slow recovery, um, you know, fallback, um, reclosing of the economy, which is not going to happen under this administration, uh, then all the money is going to pivot back in back into value cyclicals on a relative performance basis. That doesn't mean that all the tech stocks crash and no one buys tech stocks. That doesn't mean that. It means relative outperformance. So just like they've been relative underperformers when growth looks slow and rates are, are low, they will be relative outperformers when the recovery looks fast and rates start to look like they might be able to tick up when inflation expectations at historic lows look like they can start to tick up. So um, Buffett said an important thing in the 2009 interview after they cut the dividend. If you make them sell a lot of common equity, it would kill the common shareholder. That's not even on the table right now. So that's why getting this this um, business at at a discount to intrinsic value is so attractive. If there was a risk that they'd have to raise a lot of common equity, that would be worrisome. Buybacks, they can they they've stopped just out of an abundance of caution, even though we haven't hit anything near the severe uh, scenario that they put into the stress test. Dividends, they could cut to zero. I'd buy more uh, because they'll just accrue that shareholder equity inside the company, and they can pay it out later, which in effect. Like we covered last week, it's like pumping air into a ball. The price would effectively go up because that intrinsic value is being accrued versus distributed. So what will be interesting to see this time is after the bad news is out on the 14th, and maybe people started to front run it today, uh, could be part of it. Obviously, yields started to go up. That's a good thing for net interest margin. Um, but how long does it take to trade back up to book value, which is currently around $40 after all the bad news is out? And that's the case that Susan, the analyst, was making in the Barron's article. Um, Susan Roth Katsky of Credit Suisse. So that is worth bearing in mind. Okay, moving on. Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. By the way, even if they do cut to that level, the 20 cents, they're, they're, some of them are looking for 26 cents, but at 20 cents, you're still looking at a 3.2% yield at yesterday's prices that dwarfs the 10-year yield, which was at 65 basis points. So you're looking at 5x yield. It's still very, very attractive, even for those people who need the dividend relative to what they can get elsewhere. And it was trading at a 38% discount. Um, it would have to appreciate from yesterday's prices over 63% just to trade back up to book. Never mind if we get in a euphoric run and a treatment or a vaccine or something that changes the narrative from a W back to a V, in which case you could trade at historic extremes, just like you're trading at, you know, 65% uh, of book, you could be trading at 165% or 200% of book. Uh, on the flip side when you overshoot on the upside as well. So um, so we covered Charlie Scharf. We also covered the concept of why cyclicals and value outperformed about a month ago and tech and growth outperformed in recent weeks up until today. 
uh, when the banks just absolutely took off and led the charge today. Um, and the last time that the S&P 500 dividend yield to the 10-year treasury yield was at this much of an extreme was 2009 coming out of the recession and what performed like crazy banks and cyclicals in the short term and then as growth slowed then you got tech you know in the mid and later parts of the cycle uh dominated but we are at the beginning of a new cycle um and um uh that's that the other thing that we noticed was another chart from sentiment trader you can check them out on twitter uh, I think they have a website as well. And they pointed out all the times that insider buying in financials got up to these levels. It preceded multi-month and multi-year rallies in the financial sector. And we're getting up to those levels now where there's a lot of insider buying. Like you saw Charlie Scharf with $5 million uh, of his own money in March after the stock had dropped 45, 47 some odd percent. You can buy, what I love is that we're, we own it below the price that the captain of the ship was buying in meaningful amounts. Um, so, so that, that's a big deal. And, you know, Charlie Scharf ha is so experienced and he's been around for so long, with Jamie Dimon and uh, Sandy Weil. And so he knows the playbook. This is second nature to him. And this is a really, really good captain to be perfectly aligned with at a better deal than he got, which I like. So um, the other indicator that was posted on Sentiment Trader was this Berkshire Hathaway, which is another financial to S&P 500 ratio. At all these points when everyone started to say, oh, Warren Buffett's lost his touch, you know, the greatest investor of all time over, you know, six, seven decades, people say he doesn't know what he's doing anymore because he's you're at a different point in the cycle from when he makes all his money. Um, but we're moving into the period that he does make all of his money. And we may be even moving into a generational period, which we covered in last week's note Um about the value to growth when uh, his teacher, Benjamin Graham, started his fund, his hedge fund, and compounded at 20% average for 20 years, was at a period just like this. It's only happened about four times in the last two centuries where the growth to value ratio had fallen so much, and he started his hedge fund like right at that inflection, and that enabled him to have that outperformance, and then Buffett carried on with the coattails in that trend, and we're kind of at that inflection period uh, now as well. So you can go back and check out last week's article. This is uh, the Berkshire earnings yield discount slash premium to the S&P 500 earnings yield. And it, when it gets down to these ratios, it tends to inflect. Uh, we like this because everyone was piling into Berkshire um, and then he, you know, made those comments about the airlines and then a lot of big names got out of Berkshire and now the sentiment is really, really negative and that's when it can move with all the other financials. So we like this inflection. We like the story there, uh, by buying that at a discount to intrinsic value alongside Warren Buffett. That's, that's always been a good bet. Um, no, not dissimilar to in, you know, the uh, late 2000s and early uh, late 90s and early 2000s when everyone was saying he lost his touch because uh, people were making all their money in Cisco and Amazon um, 
and then all of a sudden value took over and you know he had a monster monster run in the early 2000s so um this shows another indicator of the post-recession recovery cyclical trade uh, you can get a taste for and commodities tend to outperform and we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end of this call. These are some charts from Barry Bannister, head of institutional strategy at Stiefel. It kind of shows you where we are now in the commodity cycle and um, how that reverts over time, reverts over time, how it has implications on uh, social populism and as commodity prices and inflation rise, uh, that tends to reverse itself, reverse itself, etc. So worth looking at those long-term cycles not you know necessarily trading on it per se but the two key risks that we're facing to breaking through breaking through this range here to year-to-date highs on the s p maybe filling that gap and maybe all-time highs uh in the next 12 months or sooner uh risk number one are the case spikes okay um We've seen major spikes in the Sun Belt in the past couple weeks, and we're, but at the same time, we're seeing cases in the Northeast plummet. It's more likely that the first wave has migrated than the beginning of a second wave, because if you look at these numbers, they didn't have many cases in March. Now they're all coming at once. So it's probably just a delayed reaction. If you think of the U.S. as Europe, you know, all of the cases didn't start in Germany at the same time that they started in Italy as the same time they started in UK. They kind of migrated from place to place to place. Um, so these data points, every single one of these Sunbelt states was coming off the boil. Um, I have the updated data in the last 24 hours. It's almost telling the same story with a few exceptions. So I do want to cover the updated data just to give you a look to where we are right now this is Texas it spiked back up uh, July 7th it was at 10,028 cases yesterday it was 9,782 so hopefully that's coming down now that they have the mask order in Georgia re-spiked after it fell fell off they they're now uh, hashing out you know uh, new policies that they're gonna put into place Hopefully those will start to come down. So that that is a, a negative development in Georgia. Um, California has continued to improve, so that's good. July 6th, they were up to 17,000. Yesterday, they were down to 8,900. That's a big one, and that's a huge part of GDP. So that's, a, that's very comforting. Uh, Florida spiked on July 4th at 11,400. Yesterday, it was 8,900. So moving in the right direction, they have some work to... to uh, to do but moving in the right direction in Florida. Arizona uh, peaked in on July 1st 4877. Uh, yesterday was 4057. So moving in the right direction some work to do. But if you only listen to the headlines with cases spiking out of control and all that stuff, yeah, it's definitely need work needs to be done and and there's no question it's a risk. But if you look at the places that all they had these type of spikes that you're seeing in the Sun Belt, we had those um, in March and we peaked in mid-April. So they're about uh, three months behind us. Uh, it looks like they're coming to the peaks that we had in mid-April. And look, look what's happened to Connecticut, where, where I live, uh, completely plummeted. Okay, look what's happened to New Jersey huge spikes like they're having with those mini spikes like you're seeing in Florida and Arizona completely plummeted 
uh, New York, huge spikes up till mid-April and then completely plummeted. So hopefully this is the uh, roadmap for the Sunbelt states. The other thing that happened is none of us really took it seriously in the Northeast until people around us started getting sick and then we all stuck our masks on when we went out to public indoor places. And I think that people are starting to realize that the way to beat the enemy, you know, putting on a mask is not weak, putting on a mask is strong. If you're a soldier going to battle with any enemy, you have to have a weapon. And right now the weapon we have is masks. And how is that a weapon? It's not a passive weapon. It's an active weapon because you're starving the virus and not giving it a host. So you're, you're actually starving the enemy to death by wearing a mask in public. And that's um, a sign of courage and going into battle with and, and intelligence, going into battle with weaponry versus going into battle to the front lines naked. You wouldn't go without a rifle to the front lines. So why, why wouldn't you want to starve the beast and crush it and destroy it so we can get uh, millions of people back to work, get things humming and uh, get back to normal even quicker. So we've done it in the tri-state area. You can do it uh, all over the country and we'll have more freedom than we've ever had because not going to restaurants, not going to ball games, not going to concerts, not going to hockey games, that's lack of freedom in my book. Wearing a mask to get that freedom back in, in my book is, is a way to get freedom. So it's just a different way to look at it in the short term. And in a few months, you know, hopefully before the end of the year, we'll have a vaccine. Maybe if we get lucky, we'll have a treatment even sooner. And then we can all have mass burning parties and I'll be the first one there with the, you know, with the uh, lighter fluid. Don't, <laughs> you know, don't worry about that. Um, Okay, so that was the first risk. So bad news is some of those states are a little iffy, but going in the right direction. Good news is we know the roadmap works. Just like we saw China's recovery, they were a few months before us, and then we started recovering economically. Uh, they peaked in February, we peaked in April. Uh, same thing will happen here with the roadmap. The second thing that could throw us off course is if Chairman Powell, so Chairman Powell has done a masterful job of saving the economy from the abyss, along with Secretary Mnuchin, Larry Kudlow, and the administration as a whole. And uh, I'm concerned that he might tap the brakes too soon. In the last two weeks, he's reduced. Okay, so this is a nuanced thing, and I'm going to cover this because the balance sheet has come down by about 80 some odd billion in the last two weeks now. The data came out today. It's nuanced because treasury purchases have gone up, which I was concerned about. Um, the data I had on Thursday was as of July 1st. The new data came out today because it was delayed from the holiday. But this type of rhetoric, so, so the point that I made was, why would you even consider lightening up on purchases, even a hint with unemployment at 11.1% and limited inflation. And like we saw today in the PPI, so there's no real short-term inflation risk. Intermediate to long-term, we'll know when it comes and we know how to handle it. But um, the New York Fed head of markets group, Singh, uh, said Fed bond purchases could slow if market conditions improve further. Seen dramatic recovery in market conditions since mid-March. Okay, no kidding. We're not gonna keep purchasing assets forever. We know that. But when unemployment is still at 11.1%, albeit moving very quickly, quicker than expected in the right direction, and inflation is you know nowhere to be found at the moment, why would you even verbalize anything along those lines? Like, why, why would you even come out and say that until you were at 
7% inflation, uh, unemployment, you know, and two and a half percent inflation plus for like three, four months in a row. Then you can say as conditions improve, we're going to stop on buying and your, your, your forward guidance to help, you know, contain those, those trends. We're not there. So right now the message doesn't need to be, uh, um, slow purchases could slow. The message needs to be doubled down until we get employment down, unemployment down to 7%, 6%, 5%, which we can do before the end of the year, so long as the right actions are taken in the Sun Belt and maybe we catch a lucky break with some treatments, etc. So I'm going to move over to the new data, which actually Tyler Durden, his pen name over at Zero Hedge put out. And I like Tyler's stuff uh, because, you know, he, he posts my articles sometimes, which I appreciate. And he puts out a lot of good data. So he broke down the new information that came out. It's as of uh, Wednesday, but it was published today. And the good news about the decline, so you see they, they ramped up the Fed balance sheet here, and it's really started to roll over their, purchase, their net uh, assets in the last couple of weeks. You can see it here too, the weekly change, it's really gone negative. But what's it attributable to? And with the new data, he was able to put a nice article together that treasury security purchases and bonds have actually gone up $18 billion. Um, it's the repo agreements. So you had the repurchase agreements, which was, if you remember, that was the short-term funding was was acting funny in the first three months of the year. They were doing um, daily repo operations, overnight operations, and they had to do big, like they were doing like 80 billion a day, like crazy. And then the, also the central bank liquidity swaps. So in other words, the crisis mode aspect of the balance sheet increase is behind us. So they've actually been able to wind down those programs, which is a sign of underlying health. There's no sense in keeping them going if there's no demand for short-term funding. Uh, I mean, there's no tightening in short-term funding. So people have thawed out. The fear is, is out of the system. The pipes are functioning properly. That's the good news. Um, so, and they're still increasing securities purchases. And he also put some information down about um uh corporate credit facilities it looks like they did about 10 billion or they were doing about seven uh corporate bond etfs disclosed that as of july 8th there was 10.4 billion in book value of holdings an increase of 754 million from the 9.7 billion a week prior which means the fed is now buying about 150 million in corporate bonds and or ETFs every single day, a sharp drop from the roughly 300 million a week it was buying just one month ago. So uh, this is so the good news is the balance sheet is declining in those areas which were emergency ed, uh, emergency measures which are no longer required uh, in short-term funding markets. Uh, the bad news is it's net declining, and you shouldn't it shouldn't be declining until you get unemployment down to you know mid single digits get back to pre-covid levels if possible without you know overwhelming inflation uh, so use this gap opportunity now that we know the sources of of that reduction in balance sheet to ramp up 
uh, asset purchases in order to get that liquidity into the system. And more importantly, the thing that I pointed out in the article is, you know, there is a narrative in the market, you know, kind of a wealth effect and what it does for sentiment. So the Nasdaq's made new highs. That's a good thing because it kind of takes the double dip narrative off the table. Uh, but, you know, I think Main Street really needs to see the Dow and the S&P 500 at new highs because they're all saying, oh, it's going to go back down. You know, you all have your family and friend members like, oh, this is just fake and it's going to recrash. And I think what it would do to consumer confidence and spending and business confidence and hiring to see the S&P either, you know, make year to date uh, positive or certainly all-time highs and similarly with the Dow and then you know naturally followed by the Russell 2000 that would be probably later um, that takes the double dip narrative off the table and at that point if you want to lighten up once you know and let things consolidate etc and unemployment continues to go down millions get back to work you know Chair Powell is well aware of the risk to structural unemployment for the most at-risk groups because he saw what happened after the 2008-2009 and he brings it up at every press conference that he has so it's on him having that knowledge to keep the pedal to the metal and double down until you know and ride the momentum because it's much harder to regain momentum after you lose it than it is to um advanced momentum so he did all the heavy lifting 80 percent of the job establishing momentum in a crisis and he did a superlative job coupled with mnuchin cudlow the administration etc all the programs worked um but now is not the time to let up in any way even if the cause of the uh, balance sheet reduction was you know funding sources and emergency funding that is no longer needed Fill that gap with normal asset purchases to take things to the next level, to reinstill confidence, and to let the economy heal on its own now that we have momentum. So those are the two things that are at risk if they tighten too early. And we don't need this type of thing like when things get great, we'll stop buying bonds. Like who cares? That's Captain Obvious. You know, we know that. Things aren't anywhere near great yet. They're going in the right direction faster and better than expected. But you still got millions of people unemployed that need to get back to work. So this type of work uh, uh, rhetoric does not help, nor does um, reducing the size of the balance sheet at this stage. In other words, you've done a miraculous job. Keep it up. Don't let up is, is kind of the message. Uh, and if they follow through on that, they're going to go down in history as saviors of a Great Depression. They, they kept us out of a Great dis Depression, put millions of people back to work quickly, and you know they will make history if they, if they follow through. If they quit before the finish line with 80% of the job done, uh, then, you know, then that's the worst thing that could ever happen because we've spent all this money and we've added all this liquidity and then we'll have to do it again and future generations will be paying forever. So you have to push while you've got the momentum and then eventually it'll fly on its own. Um, the other thing that I loved about this week in terms of sentiment, we're moving on to the short term. The bullish sentiment only moved up to 27% which historically favors being a buyer versus being a seller. It was up from 22, but nowhere near euphoria. We, you know, we would need to see this up closer to the 40% before we got a little bit, you know, 
aware and maybe lightening up and that type of thing. So it's nice to see the market moving without sentiment moving. Means there's a wall of worry we can continue to climb. You see here, we're down towards these levels, not towards these levels where you have to uh, start to be cautious. Uh, fear and greed index, again, same thing, right in the middle of range. It pinned down at zero in March. It hasn't gotten up to euphoria 80 to 100 this whole entire move, this whole entire consolidation. You know, at 80 to 100, I'd start to say, what could I lighten up? We're not there yet. That's good news. Uh, the National Association of Active Investment Managers actually uh, got new data. It's up to 85. But as you see historically here, and I did this 10 years, when you come out of these huge drops like in 2011, and this is similar to 2011 in a number of ways, um, but once you finally get over that um, 85 level, it can stay pinned up there for years as the market rallies. Exact same thing after the 2015-2016 crash. Um, <clears throat> After it got up over 85, it stayed pinned there for a while. So we've just had this crash here, and we're just now making it back up to 85. Don't be surprised if this doesn't stay pinned up here with that kind of exposure as people chase back in. Uh, we Just a note to the people listening to the podcast, if we get cut off in the next few minutes, you can go to hedgefundtips.com and listen to the last few minutes on the website, there'll be a video cast. Just fast forward to the end and you won't miss anything. We do have a lot to cover this week because last week's was a little shorter and a few more things to go. The uh, Our message for the week on the article was the three most important things we're watching in the coming days and weeks to determine if the S&P 500 can push into the green for the year or pull back in the short term are number one is new cases, which we went through. Two is the Fed balance sheet. Now we know why it was coming in the last two weeks, but we still want to see it going up in the short term until unemployment comes down. And then Q2 earnings season and forward guidance. The good news is expectations are so, so low easy bar to step over. People are less interested in the earnings as they are in the forward guidance. And uh, we'll see if the guidance starts to sync with the economic surprise index with everything coming in better than expected in recent weeks. So uh, in the interim, we'll hold what we have and shave only in the event we do hit levels of euphoria that we've not seen since February. We just went through those levels. And until then, it's only a question of whether it takes weeks or months based on the three factors above. And when we'll be able to sing along with ACDC for the S&P, yes, I'm back in black. Get the S&P back into the black. Positive year to date. Okay, moving on. Um, the other aspect that I just wanted, I put this chart up regarding the bank's thesis that we've been belaboring uh, in a good way is the last two times the yield curve has steepened this quickly and I've got the 210 yield curve, 210 spread here. Uh, was 2009 and 2003. And if you look here, you can see the updated version. I know I've shown this in recent weeks, but basically after you have a crash in the financials, the green line is the XLF. The green line is the XLF. The yield curve steepens. And you know everyone's talking about, well, banks can't make any money because rates are, are so low. That's not, the, the issue is the spread. You know, if, if the short end is zero and you know, zero to 15 bips and and the fed is talking about yield curve control which means they're going to keep the whole short end of the curve down from you know they're going to move out from the short end which is at zero to 25 bips and take that type of uh rates to three year and the five year and let the 
long end do what it's going to do, this spread, I mean, it's basically going to be pouring buckets and buckets and buckets of money into owners of banks' laps, i.e. profits, because the cost between what, between, you know, their cost of goods sold. What, is, what do they sell? They sell money, okay? So they lend money to people who need it. What they pay for it is the short end, and what they lend it at is the long end, and the wider that spread gets, the more money they make. And that's why you see this every time after the crash, the Fed steepens the yield curve so they can start to make money again because because the recovery the health of a recovery is totally parallel to the health of banks recovery because if banks are healthy they can lend more extends credit to main street consumers small businesses etc and that's what makes everything get back to normal and here we have the exact same thing you had this crash low crash low the spread increased up to here then it pulls back a little bit just like we're seeing right now by the way this is very interesting 2009 i didn't even look at it this way you had this bounce off the bottom then a pullback in the xlf bounce off the bottom then a pullback in the xlf this spread starts to roll over a little bit this spread starts to roll over a little bit here 